Uh, good morning. It's Saturday, the 4th of October, 2014, and Pete tells me that we're at Sutter Smoke 166. Is that right, Pete? Yes, Roger. <laughs> All right. We're, um, we have, uh, I think we have a really interesting and useful uh, Sutter Smoke plan for you guys uh, today, and um, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But first, we always have to start, Pete. And thanks, by the way, for getting up at zero dark thirty. It's real dark. It's dark in California right now. It's, it's early in the morning. It's not quite so early here, but appreciate you getting up to talk to us. Um, we got to start with the segment. What's on your bench? So, what do you what have you been working on, Pete? Uh, right now, I'm working on a project uh, that'll be a subject of a series of future articles in QRP Quarterly called "Let's Build Something." And what's on the bench right now, the first step is a direct conversion receiver. And this will ultimately morph into a complete single sideband transceiver. And uh, uh, I'm working on this project uh, with a local ham here, Ben, KK6FUT. So uh, each segment will add to the, the initial let's build something. And uh, it, it'll move from a direct conversion receiver to a single sideband transceiver. It'll be about... Uh, Four segments to, that will take us to from uh, initially uh, the DC receiver to the to the transceiver. Oh well, excellent. That's that's very you know very very appropriate for the topic that we're going to discuss today, which will be very closely related to that, which is getting started in home brewing, um, and and it's also very kind of related to what some of the stuff that I've been working on. I, I have it's been a kind of an unusual couple of weeks here in the shack. I've been involved. It's sort of kind of a grab bag of activities. I, I've made a list of all the things that I want to work on. I've got it tacked up above the, uh, the workbench and I'm slowly working my way through it. But it's kind of fun because I find myself doing a lot of kind of shorter term projects, not like the longer uh, Bidex uh, builds or things like that, but just sort of odds and ends, but interesting odds and ends, I think. For example, we're getting ready. This, this winter, we're going to take a trip down to the Dominican Republic. And I'm thinking about taking a little rig with me. So I pulled out my old um, <clears throat> direct conversion NE602 20-meter uh, ceramic resonator rig. I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before. And I just started test. I wasn't quite happy with it. A, a while back, I put a, a JBOT uh, amplifier in it, which works fine. But there was something not quite right. And I just started looking at it and poking around with it, noodling, as they'd say. And uh, I checked <laughs> and I... <laughs> I just noticed that um, the, the the balance modulator just wasn't doing it. I had a two-diode balance modulator in there with a tri-filler uh, toroid, sort of the standard Doug DeMoor kind of um, balance modulator. But for some reason, it just wasn't, it wasn't, uh, the, the output wasn't sufficient. You know, with the, with the J-Bot, you can count on, you know, three, four, five, six watts if you put one milliwatt in. And I, I looked at it, the amplifier was working fine, but I just wasn't, the full wasn't even close to the full milliwatt of the input so i checked the balance modulator and it just something was wrong in there and i didn't really feel like going in there and doing any kind of detailed troubleshooting i had in my junk box an sbl1 and i remember that you and i recently talked about the sbl1 and uh and what a nice uh diode ring mixer that is so with you kind of in mind i pulled out my old uh two diode balance modulator and just popped in the sbl1 and, um, you know, I, I, I got it to work really, really well. I, I did not have to use your um, refinement of the, the pot in there that we, we saw in experimental methods. I might try that later. But for now, it, it's working okay. But you know what I found was really interesting for me? It wasn't working right at first. And then I checked the, uh, 
the the level from the local oscillator, how much uh, local oscillator input I was putting into the LO input pin. And it, mine was like high. It was way too high. I was probably up at around uh, 800 millivolts or something like that. And they, I think the SBL1 wants about like 200 millivolts. So I just played around with the oscillator a little bit and I actually lowered the, uh, the the voltage that I had on the little Colpitts oscillator and got it so that the input to the SBL1 was about what the specs called for, which is just under 200 millivolts. And man, once I did that, it really, really worked very, very well. And so it made me a believer in, in checking the specs. Oh, absolutely, Bill. Yeah, that's the thing is uh, uh, you almost develop the mentality of plug and play. Just plug that thing in there and it'll play. Yeah. <laughs> and it may take a little more than, than that to make it work. Yeah, it's bad, too. If it plays after a fashion, you think it's okay, but then you realize that it's not quite giving you the sideband, not giving you the carrier uh, rejection suppression that you want. Right. And so, anyway, I, that, 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 was, uh, that was one little project. And then, hey, Pete, my Drake 2B... You, you want to know what a fantastic receiver this is? It fixed, yeah. It fixed itself. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, okay. I had this up on the list up here. It's been on the list, and it says, you know, I've, t I've talked about it. I've got AC Hum in the Drake 2B, and you, you had recommended the place where I could get the replacement capacitor. And what was the name of that place? Hayseed Hamfest. Hayseed Hamfest. I found it. I was all set to order one. And then I started thinking, you know, I said, I... I recapped this thing, and it wasn't that long ago. So why did why why are these caps going bad again? They usually last longer than that. So today I figured, okay, I'll take this thing out and I'll just poke around with it in a little bit and see what's what's wrong. But I was real suspicious because I thought those caps that I put in there a while back it wasn't that long ago, and the caps should last longer than that. And they would I put them in with I put new caps in there. Anyway, I I didn't even get the thing off the operating table. I was reaching around the back to kind of unplug everything, and I, you know, I, I unplugged. I noticed that the plug for the Q multiplier was hanging in there kind of funny, and I said, aha, aha. It might have been that that, just thing got, that thing got bumped, and it was kind of hanging in there, and it wasn't making a good connection between the Q multiplier and the Drake 2B, and that might have been where it was picking up RF, or AC hum. But as soon as I unplugged the Q multiplier, I fired it up, and my AC hum was completely gone. And I just sort of cleaned the contacts on the Q multiplier, put it back in there. The thing is working like a charm. So uh, the Drake 2B, a receiver that fixes itself. Yeah. Well, hey, that's great because, uh, you know, even, even though parts are readily available for replacing those uh, electrolytics, uh, I, I find that uh, changing out an electrolytic on some of the Drake gear uh, can be most perplexing because uh, a lot of those have the copper chassis, yeah. and uh, they sort of welded no, <laughs> the, the yeah. can to the chassis, and getting those off is not easy without burning up all the wires around it. So you you are lucky indeed, and uh, that that's really great news. Well, yeah, and then I, I you know I had so much fun with it. I, I got up I got up early this morning, earlier than normal. But you know when you're when you're a home brewer. You know, waking up a little bit earlier, it, there's there's a lot of benefits to that. So I spent a little extra time in the shack this morning, but and and all, especially on Saturday morning, it's good because here on the East Coast we have the old military radio net, and I think it comes on like about six o'clock or something like that on 75 meters on AM, and with the 2B now fixed and sounding good, 
I just turned it down to the frequency where those those guys meet every Saturday morning. And it was just a pleasure to listen to him on the 2B. The 2B is not the best receiver for AM because it's not really wide. But it was wide enough. And, you know, I, I listened to these guys, and it was just great. I, I love listening to that frequency. I, I imagine you guys have something similar out on the West Coast. But back here, the old military radio net, you talk about really good kind of tech talk. They, they must have 20 or 30 guys check in, and each one of them has something interesting to say about the old boat anchor gear and military gear that they're working on. So I listened to them, and then I then I decided to see if I could get the uh, the 2B going on the uh, on the warp bands, and I had crystals that were close enough. I fired it up on 17, and I got it going on 17. Uh, 30 meters was giving me a little trouble, but I, I I poked around with it a little bit, and I figured out that the uh, the crystal that I had in there for 30 meters just wasn't wasn't percolating with the Drake 2B. So I replaced it with a crystal that was sort of close in frequency, and now now it's fine. So I'm I'm picking up no problem at all. 17 sounds great. 30 sounds good, and uh, maybe later this weekend I'll look around and see if I can get a crystal. I'd, I'd love to be able to listen to 12 meters with this thing. Do you know why it sounds so good? Um, because it's it's broad. Well, it's got tubes. <laughs> it's got tubes in the audio output. That's why. And you know, I hate to say it, but it's got no crystal filters in there either. <laughs> yeah. No crystal yeah. filters. It's all LC filters. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty kilohertz IF. Huh? Triple conversion. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. But but there's just something about the tube radios, uh, especially. Uh, the older boat anchors, uh, the, it just the, the audio sounds fuller. And, oh no, I, and I, it, I know, I know exactly what you mean. It sounds it sounds really nice, and I, I you know, I'm I, I've been saying I'm I've been kind of drifting away from from CW, no pun intended. But you know, I I um uh, I I fired it up, and I had, when I had it on thirty meters, it was playing CW, and it just sounded so nice. I felt myself getting lured back to the back to the key. But I, I did a little experiment. I I wanted to uh, you know, and this is very kind of unscientific very unprecise but i have my um my now beloved uh bit x 17 that i'm using all the time and now that i had the seven i had the drake 2b go and i have a little antenna switch so i can switch back and forth pretty easily and there was um, a fairly weak station coming in from from ukraine and so i i was hearing him but it was he was just a little bit marginal on the drake 2b but i wanted to see what it would be like if i switched over to the bit x receiver and he was just about the same, just about the same readability. So that says something about the BitX receiver. If it compares favorably with the Drake 2B, it's doing pretty well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to tell you about one more project. Um, and I want to seek some advice from you on this. And, and I think you're, you're in part responsible for this. I blame you, and I blame, I blame Paul, M0XPD, perhaps, you know, Colin... Um, Colin, we've been talking to about this kind of stuff, uh, M1, BUU, all this Arduino business. All right, now here's what's happened. Uh, I have another receiver, a little, um, it's uh, a, another bell, bare bones superhead. It was built by Dale Parfit, who's a real. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dale, I mean, I was looking at Dale. Did you ever see Dale's solid state Drake 2B? Oh, yes, I have. He and sent that, me some pictures. Oh, my God. Thing of beauty. But anyway, yeah. I, I've told this story so many times. I picked up this other bare-bones super hat on eBay, and years later, years after I bought it, I was seeking advice and counsel on QRPL about how to get this thing working on a different band or something like that. And uh, a guy started giving me real advice, great advice, and it was Dale. And after we went back and forth four or five times, Dale said, hey, wait a second. 
I think I was the one who built that thing. And he actually built the one that I bought. He had wow. sold it to me, and I had forgotten. He had forgotten. But anyway, uh, I'm I'm back with it now, and I, I I need what I what I need to do now is I kind of I did a kind of real quick and dirty conversion of the crystal filter from narrow CW bandwidth to broader uh, SSB bandwidth. And I, all I did is I went in there and changed the caps. I changed the values right. of the caps. Right. And it's one of those things, just like we said before, it worked a bit, but I realized that it's got a lot of ripple in there. That pass band is just ugly. It just, it doesn't sound good at all. And so what I want to do, well, first I want to, I want to get a sense of how ugly the ripple is. And to do that, of course, I need my signal generator. I need a real precise signal generator. I need the signal generator that we've been talking about using the DDS and the Arduino and the LCD, where you can go down to about, you know, 100 hertz or, or 10 hertz and then just shift it that way and shift it along. So I want to do a, I want to take a look at what this thing looks like. So I went to my own clunkly, you know, kludge built uh, DDS. And, uh, and, of course, this morning it's not working. And it, I know it's not working because I made such a mess of connecting the pins from the DDS chip to the Arduino to the LCD thing. And it was just a real mess. But this is where Paul comes in, M0XPD. He had sent me a while back a shield, a, a DDS shield for the Arduino. And it's a, a DDS shield kit with a nice, neat board and everything else. It looks it looks beautiful. My, my thing looked like, you know, some sort of, you know, worship to the flying spaghetti monster or something like that. Wires all over the place and everything. But his looks so nice and neat. But 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 here's the here's the thing that's really got me uh, kind of concerned this morning, uh, Pete. It's uh, it requires some surface mount soldering. Ooh, easy. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> easy. <laughs> all right. I, I I listen. You'll be proud of me. I, I have it. I have it laid out on the bench. I have a big magnifying glass. I have a nice sheet of white paper underneath so that I can find the parts when they fall off the board. I even have my, um, you know, my Xtronic 4000 series um, temperature control soldering iron and reflow station. So I could blow hot air on this thing, too. Wow. And um, I'm, I'm changing the tip on the soldering iron to get the real fine tip. But what do you think? Should I... Should I try? There's two little chips that I have to put on the board. Two little ICs. They're not really super tiny, but they're tiny enough. And um, uh, the conga, conga board has the, the the pads all pre-soldered, so there's nice little comfortable kind of little pools of solder on each one. Should I try to connect this thing with the iron, or should I try to connect it with hot air? Oh, okay. Uh, well, c can I back up a, a, a bit and, and just uh, share this piece of information since Absolutely. this uh, deal, deals with uh, uh, homebrewing? Um, first of all, when I work on surface mount, uh, I, I went to um, one of these bargain stores and I bought a cookie sheet. And the, and the cookie sheet has a lip on it. And it's just a flat pan. It cost me a dollar in the dollar store. And it's uh it's like about maybe eight by fifteen, and and it has about a half inch lip, and and then I slip my piece of paper in, in the bottom of that. So not only when the part flips off the board, can you see it with the white background? The cookie sheet contains it. 
So, so, so this, I I do this all the time when, when I'm working on, on surface mount. This is tribal knowledge. This is is tribal knowledge in the 21st century. Yeah. I have my cookie. I have my cookie sheet and and I gotta, I gotta tell you, it's, it's saved my bacon more than once because it it may flip off the pay uh, off the board onto the white paper, but it could fly off a sufficient distance that it's on the desktop and you will never find it. I know. I know. You You will never find it. So the cookie sheet. All the right, other so thing that I'll get a cookie sheet. Okay. The other thing that I do is uh, I, I invested in a small roll of masking tape mm-hmm. because one of the problems is the board will move around. Yeah. So what I do is I, I use the masking tape and I pick the corners uh, so that you don't interfere with any of the area you're working on. Yeah, I think it's and, good. And yeah. and then tape it to the to the white white paper. So yeah, you know. I got one of these Radio Shack third-hand things with the two little yeah, clips. Yeah, that'll, that'll work, too. Well, the, the only reason I, I mask it, use the masking tape flat, because then it's just a flat surface to work on. Because I got one of those third-hand job dues, but it's kind of, you know, floating in space. Yeah, it does. It kind of bounces around a little bit. And if you just yes. tap it, the thing becomes like a trampoline for the ice. Yeah, ice. yeah. So so I, I put the masking tape down. And then my next tool of choice is a Pentel mechanical pencil. With that has the uh, uh, 0.5 millimeter lead, uh-huh. okay, and what I use that for is just put a little lead out, and that's what I use in my left hand to hold the part down. Ah, okay. Because the lead is soft, and you're not going to scratch anything, or you're not going to you know damage anything, and it gives just a little. I use HB lead, just a little uh, little hold in place, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I hold those in place. And then something, uh, when I was back in the military, long, long time ago, they said, when you, uh, when you go to shoot a gun, hold your breath and squeeze the trigger. <laughs> so when breathe, I solder. It's breathe, <laughs> breathe, relax, and Yeah, squeeze. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I usually watch what I'm doing because it, in the breathing process, you'll move. Yeah. So I usually hold my breath a little bit. And, and I don't try to do a, a whole solder job uh, all at once. I'll, I'll try to tack, tack solder one piece so, yeah. so it's enough to hold it. And then you can go solder the other ones. So um, that's kind of what I do. may not be the correct procedure, but it works for me. So, And I, I was going to mention this a little bit about the pan, okay. <laughs> masking tape, masking tape. Masking tape. And uh, by the way, the the other thing, when you're not doing surface mount, I I have uh, built another little device. If you think of a miter box, you know, kind of a miter box you can buy at Home Detail. Uh I made a small size miter box, so it looks like a U-shape, just like you would see in the miter box, um, out of some scrap wood. And, And then I'll mask that down. And then when you have a circuit board that you have to solder... Uh, essentially the plated through, what you do is just put, put your components in that, lay the circuit board across the, quote, miter box, and you can tack solder from the top. So this way you have, and it's deep enough, it's like about two inches high on the, on the miter box part. So this way you can put the components through and then turn it over, snip the leads, and then you get a real good solder from that standpoint. So, I mean, these are some homebrew tools that, that facilitate stuffing circuit boards or doing surface mount solder. That's fantastic. You know, on on surface mount, one of the things that I've I, I, another question I have for you is um, flux or not to flux. 
because I have I picked up in Italy, and you'll like this. Um, it's uh, and it, it, I've I've a big like Italian jar of soldering flux. Now it's not plumbing flux, so it's not it doesn't have any of the acid in it. It is for electrical components, and it's um, you know I I I've in the past I've kind of you know put this stuff around in in kind of excessive quantities, and it becomes a problem because later on you have to clear you have to clean it up. But when I read about some of the some of the surface mount articles, they do recommend at least a small amount of flux in there to reduce the amount of time that you have the iron on the component. What do you think? Uh, I got to be honest with you. I bought one of these flux pens. Yeah. And and I tried that, and and it was just not my cup of tea. Yeah. I, I, I ended up a mess. Yeah, yeah. And then trying trying to clean it off afterwards, you know, they suggested alcohol and all that. My boards look like crap after that. Yeah, and I it say, does. You know I, I why? Had the same thing. Why? Why? It stays, oh, why am I doing this? I know. It's, it's, no matter how much you clean it off, there's a little bit stays there, and then it ends up corroding the copper and everything else. So, okay, no flux. No flux. All right. So I'll, uh, this is something I'm going to take on later. I also think it's probably best for me to wait a little while because when I have my morning coffee, uh, my hand is not as steady. You know, I've got the, those yeah, caffeine jitters. Yeah. You've got to decaffeinate yourself a little bit before you do the surface mount. But, um, oh, yeah, one other project I want to mention because this is also a part in part the result of of your advice and guidance, my uh, I, I recently completed uh, another orbit of the Earth, and my uh, loving family gave me some really cool gifts. One of them was at my suggestion. It was a CCI 140 watt um, amplifier, so the communication concepts amplifier. You know, I, I usually don't go for kits, but <laughs> the thought of building something that's going to generate 140 watts of RF. You know, I have trouble getting amps at two or three watts stable. So I figured that discretion was the better part of valor here. And I figured, okay, I'll go for the kit. This is a standard thing. This is from the Motorola Tech Notes, and it, it works. And anyway, we got the kit. So I'm now in the process of sort of putting the kit together. And I'm doing some things that I've never had to do before, which is kind of exciting. I, I, I went and got, I ordered from CCI uh, this week. It might come today. Uh, a large heat sink. I, I think I told oh, you that. Yeah. I was thinking about using several smaller um, heat sinks, um, uh, a solder smoke listener sent me some of them. I'm going to save those for another project because I just didn't like the idea of kind of having temperature differentials across the whole board caused by different, you know, different yes. hunks of yes. metal. Yes. Yes. And also I was yes. concerned that it, it might cause some ground loops because the, the boards might not be actually in contact. I figured it was better just to have one big hunk of aluminum. So that's coming from CCI, but I also the other thing they say in the in the instructions is that you have to you have to drill it, tap it, and dye it. You know, tap and you have to put put the threads in there in the hole that you put in for the 440 screws. Right. So I'm I've, I've got the I've got the equipment. I've got the little thing in, that you turn to put the uh, the threads in the aluminum. I've never done that before, so we'll be we'll be doing that after I get that done. Well, then there's low pass filters and stuff, so I'll work on that. But I'm, yeah. I'm also going to be out looking around for a 12-volt, uh, 20-amp supply. I've never had to use these many amps, uh, Pete. So yeah. I'll, be, I'll be searching eBay for, uh, <laughs> for a 20-amp supply. Uh, I wanted to back up a second on, yeah. on the tapping. This, yeah. is, this is tribal knowledge. Okay? All right, here we go. Tri tribal knowledge. First of the worst thing you can you're going to find that the taps, uh, if you put too much torque on them, you can snap the tap. Yeah. So the, the the material's very brittle. I only have one. So, so what you, what you want to do is you want to get some three in one oil, 
Got and it. what you, you what you want to do is when you start that tap in there, uh, tap it you know a few turns and then back it out, because one of the problems is um, you, you're collecting material in there, and so as you're removing the material, it doesn't come all the way out. You know, it's, like, it's sort of like an endless screw, and it's supposed to the material is supposed to come to the top, but it doesn't. So you know, tap a few turns, back it out, add a little more oil, tap a few turns, back it out. And and take your time. I mean, I think there's, uh, I can't remember exactly, but I think when I did, I, I have the same amp kit, and I think when I did that, you have to tap what about six or eight holes. Yeah, something, something like that. So, something like that. There, there's four for the transistors, and then uh, <clears throat> I think there's a four mounting on the corners. Uh, yep. I think there's so total vote. So if you do it in less than two hours, you're doing it too fast. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Do take your time, and uh, you know, you know, they tell you lay the board down, and then and mark it. And the other thing too is, um, there's nothing wrong with using a, a center punch uh, to start the holes. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to get. Uh, yeah, so you want to, you know, the the initial pilot holes that you drill, do those accurately, because uh, <clears throat> there may be a little clearance or or uh, tolerance you have for aligning those things, but. But on the transistors, it's really important that you get those holes exactly right. All right. Yeah, well, that's, that's good advice on the tap and everything else. Uh, so I'm kind of looking forward to this project. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a rag chewer on, on 17. And I, uh, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a, a few more uh, S units there for the, for the poor yeah, call. Yeah, the other you, you, trying to hear. you know, you're going you're gonna to find that um, in the 100, 100 what I think they call a... EB762 or AN762, I think is the is the amp kit, and depending on what devices you put in there, you can get anywhere from 140 to 200 watts out of it, and and so it does not take a lot of drive. So be really careful yeah. about putting more than about a watt or two in there. <laughs> Believe it or not, a watt or two will drive it up to 140 watts. So uh, you you pump five six watts in there, you're you're putting some of your circuitry at risk. And All the right. other thing is, uh, when you when you first initially um, tune that thing up, uh, get yourself an ammeter so you can see how much bias. Now, the, the instructions, now maybe they've changed the instructions, but the instructions are, are essentially the Motorola technical note, and, and CCI doesn't provide you anything more than that. Yeah. And and you will, you will need to look at the bias. And so if you just, you know, turn on the amp and have a, an ammeter in line, you can see where to set that bias point. Yeah, I know. I, I I've played around with with you know smaller solid state amps like this, and I know it, I know about that. Yeah. So I think they do send out a little bit more information now. They they have they they sent out a little instruction. Uh, oh, okay. With it. So. Well, I, I did mine about ten, twelve years ago, and it, I just sat there scratching my head a bit, saying, "Okay." And as a matter of fact, they they have the bigger amp, um, the six hundred watt job, that uh, has has the MOSFETs in it. And I think there's four of them in there, and they each have an individual bias spot, mm -hmm. and they and they're not too clear about how you set all those. Yeah, yeah. And so it says set the bias. Well, okay, but where? You know, just where and and how do you do that? And and one of the reasons, one of the ways is to turn the bias down so that there's nothing flowing. Yeah. And then set the first one, and then look at your meter, and then okay, whatever that current is, double that, and put the third one, whatever that current is got to be you know three times that amount and etc but that's not real clear in the instructions all right well i'm gonna 
I'll, I'll be consulting with you as we get closer to these exciting moments in the uh, in the amplifier project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, I think that brings us to the topic of today, which is what we, we had thought about. It would be a good idea to talk about uh, kind of how to get started in home brewing. We have we have a lot of listeners that, that write in and say, you know, I, I, I like listening to the show, but I, I don't really build anything myself. And they, they often kind of hint that they would like to, but they really just don't know how to get started. So um, in the spirit of passing along tribal knowledge, uh, I, th- I thought we would, Pete and I thought it would be a good idea to just talk a little bit about going back to real mm-hmm. kind of basic levels and how to get started in this game if you want to. And I think the uh, the inducement will be is that if you do this, even at a real basic level, even if you complete this one very simple project, you will then join the elite ranks of the true radio amateur home brewers. Right, Pete? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You'll never There's have nothing, to... nothing, nothing like soldering your fingers together. Oh, yeah. Then you, you'll There's be in a the thrill. Club. You'll be in the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the few, the proud, the home brewers. All right. I, I, I'm just going to, I guess this is where we'll just sort of throw out uh, sort of sort of words of wisdom. And one thing I always tell people when they ask, I said, you know, start out small and don't bite off more than you can chew in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, um, I, I guess we had a little discussion previously of, of, about the show, and I, I think that uh, your, your idea is something, you start start really small. You know, don't, don't try to build... You know, a, a single sideband transceiver, you never built one before. Um, you know, start with a small project. And, and I guess uh, either a, a transmitter as a first project or a receiver. And, and almost, uh, <clears throat> you know, someone said, which one? I, I guess it doesn't matter as long as you start. Uh, although, starting with a receiver, that's something that uh, y- you can tell if it's working a little bit easier than, than a transmitter. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that, Bill? Well, you know, I, 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 you know, I have, I have a, a painful history on this that I've talked about on the podcast of, of, of violating that rule and taking biting off more than I could chew. And especially with this, I, a while back I was talking about the Herring Aid 5 project where as a teenager I, I tried to build this uh, direct conversion receiver out of QST, out of the 1976 QST, and I couldn't get it going. So for me, at that point, even what we think is a simple direct conversion receiver, that really for me was, was more than I could, could, could do. So years later when I got back into it, one of the first projects that I took on and it was a real confidence builder for me, and I, I recommend it. It's um, a simple one-transistor oscillator transmitter. It's a little CW transmitter. And the circuit that I used was called the Michigan Mighty Might. And yep. if you go out on the Internet, you can find it really easily. It's a, you know, now, the beauty of this thing is that it's, it's fairly easy to get going. And, and also, it's, it's fairly easy to tell if you've got it going because it's a little oscillator. And if you build it and then you hook up power to it and you turn on your receiver, most people have a receiver, shortwave receiver of some sort around. And if you can hear it oscillating and it's working, and it's working. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and yeah. then you are, you, you have generated yep. radio frequency energy. <clears throat> yep. You, you have built a transmitter now. I know a lot of guys are listening are saying, yeah, but I'm not interested in CW. But that's okay. Even if you never do a contact with it, 
just having it sit there and knowing that you produced a device that can produce radio frequency energy, I think puts you in the home brewers club. It's, um, you know, you know, at sort of entry level, but, but you made something that makes radio waves. And I, you know, when I built that thing, I, I have, I think if you, I have my, my, my old QSL card from the Dominican Republic, and it has me sitting in front of the uh, Helicrafters HT37 and the Drake 2B. But if you look closely on the on the table I have in front of me, you could see that little Michigan Mighty Might right there. I was very proud of that thing. It has a, a coil wound on a 35 millimeter uh, film uh, can, and uh, man, it was it was it was really fun. I mean, I didn't get it working the first time. I had to kind of fiddle with it a little bit. But man, when I got that thing percolating, it was like. I think I joked it was like the joy of oscillation. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, though, I, I'm going to put a slightly different twist on this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that not only you built a transmitter, but you built your first piece of test equipment. There you go. That's right. Because uh, when you work on stuff later on, like uh, let's say you're working on a receiver and, and you want to check to see... Yeah, and I always start at the back end, Bill. You, that, that's my, my view. And let's say I start with an audio amplifier and I have a little product detector and a BFO. And I, you're saying, does this thing work? If you take this Michigan Mighty Might, put a, put a crystal in there and, and just tweak the crystal a little bit, you'll be able to detect that. So that's with it. that transmitter, <laughs> it now becomes a critical piece of test equipment for the home brewer. So yeah. it's, it's more than just a transmitter. It's your first piece of test equipment. More bang for the buck. Not only that, it's, it's more than that, too, because once you get this experience of getting an oscillator stage to oscillate, I mean, in a lot of these, these simple early projects, that can be the real showstopper. That, that was what was the showstopper for me in the Herring Aid 5 direct conversion receiver project back when I was 16 years old. I... I had I didn't realize it, but I had almost the entire receiver working. It's just that I didn't have the coils hooked up properly to make the local oscillator oscillate, and, and without that, nothing was going to happen. Right. So the experience of making an oscillator work, knowing how to tell if it's working, all those things. It's this is a this is like important experience. So I I really think that if you want to get started in in home brewing and you haven't uh, done anything yet like pete said don't don't think you're going to go out there and build uh, a bid x i mean there are people who can do it right off first shot uh and my hat's off to them but most of us are not that kind of skilled or talented so i would i would say just start off with that little little oscillator um and bef- but even before that i guess we should just uh, recap a little bit you, you got to have some tools you got to have some parts and you got to have some books pete right oh absolutely and, and that's where I think uh, uh, the, the Internet is so amazing because <laughs> you, you can do one search and, you know, come up with 50 references. So, uh, the, you know, also organizing that information, if you're going to secure a lot off the Internet, set yourself up a good file system on your computer. But I, I got to be honest with you, I, I almost tend to lean towards books uh, because I, I can thumb through it pretty quick. It's kind of hard to do that with a computer. Yeah, <laughs> I got to be real. Yeah. I mean, I just riffle through the book and I say, "Oh yeah, there it is." And and there are some classic books. Uh, of course, uh, 
one of the most current uh, Bibles is EMRFD, you know, Experimental Methods in RF Design. But but actually, my personal bent is if you can find a copy, is to find the uh, precursor to that called uh, the Solid State Design Manual. Uh, by uh, was with uh, Wes Hayward, and I think Doug DeMaw contributed to that one too. It, it's a little smaller book, but but it's got a lot of more basic stuff in it. The EM, uh, EMRFD has taken things up to today. Yeah. You'll, you'll find a lot of a lot of really current technology in, in that that book but the problem is you can only pack so much in the book whereas the solid state design is more at the basic level like there's a uh, universal transmitter in there <laughs> and uh -huh. i gotta tell you that's probably one of the the best articles and and i've literally built most of the projects in the solid state design manual oh, man, and I, uh, and it, it, it's it's to me it's more useful to me i i, I agree you know and i i've i've actually talked to to wes about this and you know and i and i think I mean, I, I told them that I personally, I mean, I love both books, and I use them both all the time, but it, if I had to pick one, it would be a solid-state design for many of the reasons that you just mentioned. It also just sort of, for some reason, it just sort of kind of speaks to me better. And I think this this gets to another thing that I have on my list here in terms of advice to, uh, to newcomers. I, I mean, and this is the importance of books. As you go through building these circuits, I would advise you to really try to understand them. They, you shouldn't be looking at these circuits as just a jumble of parts that you put on the board because that's what the article said. You should try to understand, what is this resistor doing? Why am I putting this resistor here? What's the purpose of this capacitor? How does the transistor function? How does this assembly of half a dozen or, or ten parts allow... Um, an oscillation to take place 14 million times a second yeah. and produce a radio wave that can travel around the world. There's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, and it's much more wonderful if you understand it as best you can. Now, at a certain level, none of us are going to understand absolutely all of it, um, and don't feel bad if the understanding takes you a long time, but you should try, and, and I think as you, as you go through this process... Uh, you know, as much as you can, try to understand the circuits you're working on. But, you know, you, keep in mind, you mentioned Doug DeMoor. I remember I, one of the articles I read by Doug, and I, I really was very grateful to hear him say that. He admitted that, that even even he had built and operated things that he did not really understand how they worked sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, sometimes you just have to put this kind of quest for understanding, well, I'm going to understand that a little bit later. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Right now, I'm going to move on a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and and I think there's another uh, key piece to the solid state design manual. They show a lot of practical pieces of test equipment that you can build. Yeah. That, that don't have a lot of part counts and are just real simple things, and and they do a really good job of explaining it. And I I think that's also a piece of the toolkit. And and uh, in addition to the test oscillator that we talked about. Uh, uh, building a uh, a diode RF probe oh, is, an, is another really important and you, really important. And if yeah. you have that, you don't you don't. A lot of guys think, well, I can't do this because I can't afford to go out and buy a new scope and a spectrum analyzer and all this stuff. You, yeah. you, you don't need it. If you go down go down to to Radio Shack, if you, you know, one of the few remaining Radio Shack, I mean, there's still a lot of them out there. But you go to Radio Shack or order online, get yourself a little digital voltmeter. Doesn't have to be real fancy. I have a little Radio Shack digital voltmeter that I've been using for years. 
And then, so that, I mean, that's, that's about the most important piece of gear you need yeah. when you're getting started. You have that, you, you've got most of it. And then you could turn that, as Pete just suggested, you could turn that into an RF device with a simple little RF probe. And that'll yeah. allow you to do some rudimentary measurements of not just DC voltages, but, but RF voltages. You could tell how much RF that little oscillator that you built is producing to see if it's if it's close to what is called for in the uh, in the schematic or in the article that you're that you're working on, and and it, it even offers the basic go no go. You know, right. do I have anything out of there? Right. Uh, is it is it of of a value? And the other thing too is uh, giving you a relative test. For instance, you build an amplifier circuit and say, is that thing working? And you can look at the RF going into the base and then look at the RF coming out of the collector. And if it's if it's the same value, you know it's not working. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> and then when it's and when it's not working, this is another thing I think is very important. We we mention this every once in a while. You got to realize that this is not plug and play radio. You have to be patient. Sometimes yeah. it's not going to work. It's not going to work for a long time. And sometimes you're going to struggle with it, and you're going to get frustrated. And you just have to learn that that's part of the game. And everybody who who builds their own rigs, goes through it, and you, you sort of have to develop your own kind of kind of coping mechanisms. And I, I think you and I have talked about this that sometimes you just need to take the thing that you're working on and put it on the back of the bench and do something else. Yep. Take a day off or work some on something else or go over and and have some contacts or walk the dog or something, and yep. then look at it later. Maybe later in the day, maybe the next day, maybe later in the week. And when you look at it with fresh eyes, very often, then the, uh, the solution will come to you. And also, I mean, as you mentioned, the Internet, it's a tremendous resource now because you could go out there and ask for advice. I mean, and, yeah. you know, you'll get good advice. You'll get not so good advice. It's, always, it's all well-meaning, but uh, you've got to have to sift through it and see which, you know, kind of works for you, which really matches up with your observations. But... That's part of the game. It can be frustrating, real frustrating. Yeah. Well, you know the uh, this is where this is a good a good definition of noodling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> take your time and noodle over it. Well, you know, I, I I just just to tell a story of how frustrating it could be. I was during one of my struggles with the with the bidex, and even the bidex the bidex wasn't even a particularly uh, difficult build. But I was fighting with something at some point, probably some unwanted oscillation at some point. And I, I actually had a nightmare about it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, in, you know what? I, in the nightmare, what I dreamed was that I, I became so frustrated with it that, like, in anger, I took all of the parts that I had placed on the board and I took them all off. <laughs> Yeah, and I, yeah. And I had this empty board with, like, blobs of solder on it in my hands. And then, of course, I, I felt remorse. But uh, it can it can get to you, right? Uh, you know, the the other thing too is um, is don't be afraid to uh, build more than one of. That's right. Uh, for for instance, I, I've built some things and I I've looked at it and I've got them working. And then I said, you know, if I if I redid this a little different way, uh, I, I'd I'd have a much better working rig, and I'd have a much better looking rig. Um, one of the things that I've done, Bill, is um, I have a, a blank piece of perf board, 
mm-hmm. you know, and yep. it, it, you can't solder to it. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put that on a little fixture I have so that it, it's sitting off, off the bench a bit. And then I st- start putting components in there and figure out how to, how to arrange all the components uh, to minimize crossovers yeah. and, and to, to look at the best layout. So, so sometime, you know, don't turn, the, the first action should not be turn on the soldering iron. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah, the first yeah. action should be think about how you're going to lay this circuit out, what makes the most sense. And uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, you're I, I, you're preaching, Go ahead. The, you're preaching to the choir because <laughs> I, I told you, I, I've said many times it took me years to, to understand that the proper sequence is design, then build. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I was going at it the other way. You know, yeah. build first, design later, and believe me, that's not the best approach. Yeah, for, for anybody that uh, looked at the um, W7ZOI HiCAS um, uh, IF amplifier and AGC circuit, um, it, it's it's not a very complex circuit, but it's got a lot of parts. I, I sat down using that technique, and I figured out how to do that whole layout with only having one wire cross over another wire. There you go. And, and to me, that was such a benefit because now everything is neat. There's no interaction. There's no un- unwanted coupling. But, but I had to sit down, and it took me about an hour to do it. And I said, this will work. So yeah. it, and the performance, once it's in the circuit, is so superb. I said, that was worth the effort. So yeah, yeah. take I, your I, time. I agree, I, but I agree with you also. It's, it, it seems kind of weird that we would build the same rig you know, twice or three times, but it, I think it's the result of, in part, sort of realizing that, wow, I, I, I made some mistakes the first time. I want to build another one, and I want to do it better. The very first trans, first real kind of uh, operational transmitter that I built was the, uh, uh, the VXO, VXO-controlled six-water out of QRP Classics. Mm-hmm. I built it for, mm-hmm. for 20 meters. It was designed by, um, by W1BD, one of the big ARRL designers, and uh, I, I, it called for uh, printed circuit boards. This is be- before Manhattan construction really became the way to go. So I actually etched a board for this thing. And it was the first time I'd ever really etched a board in a long time. And I kind of messed it up. And so the board that I ended up etching didn't look good. And, and I said, oh, I'm going to do it again. So I put that board aside and I etched a second one. And the, and the second one came out really nice and that's the one that I used to build a 20 meter transmitter but later on I was thinking wait a second that first board it might not look good but electrically it's fine so I went back and I took that kind of messed up looking board and then I I used it to build a second transmitter the second one was for 30 meters so I ended up with with two sure yeah so even sometimes even your mistakes become useful mistakes yeah, and, and you also learn some things. Uh, we were talking about the solid-state design manual. The very last project in, in that book is, is that receiver. Yeah. There, it's It's got a digital display on it and everything else. So I, I decided to build that, and I, I successfully built that, except I made one serious mistake. I had this idea that everything in there needed to be in metal boxes. Uh. So all the individual circuits are all in shielded boxes connected with RCA connectors. Yeah. So there's there's nothing getting into that thing. I, I have since given that away. But that was a serious mistake because when you go to work on that, you have to disassemble the receiver. Oh, man, it's hard. 
Yeah, so there's a something I learned when I work in industry called DFMA, you know, design for manufacturing and assembly. Yeah. So think about uh, once you build this thing, inevitably you're going to either want to improve something and change some things or you're going to want to have to fix something. Yep. So you got to be real careful and 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 think a little bit about that as you're you're developing or building or home brewing. If I got to change something or I got to repair something, how do I get to it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's one of the advantages of Manhattan style construction because yeah. you got everything up on the top of the board. And yeah. You don't have to flip everything over and yeah. go from up and up above the board, below the board, and everything else. So yeah, um, you know. All right, now so. Okay, maybe we should just sort of talk a little bit about after this, after our new builders got that first oscillator running, you know, you mentioned a direct conversion receiver, and I agree. I think that's a great kind of um, kind of second project because all you're really doing is you're taking an oscillator similar to the first one, maybe, yeah. not, maybe not the same oscillator, but a similar oscillator, and you're going to hook it up to a mixer of some sort, and you're going to mix the incoming radio signal with the signal of your oscillator, and you're going to produce audio. Audio yep. comes out the other end, and you come up with a little audio frequency amplifier, and you've just yep. built yourself a receiver. Yep. And uh, I, I, I mean, I, I love direct conversion receivers. They sound great. They're they're easy to build. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the project that that, that you guys are working on. Yeah, um, let me just digress for one second about going back to the oscillator. Yeah. If if you put two or three crystals in parallel, you can um, you can modify that that oscillator transmitter to turn it into a VXO. That's right. So that you can swing the frequency. Mm-hmm. So th- that's another reason to build the transmitter first, because as you say, <laughs> this can be your local oscillator. Yeah. And, and if you put a couple of crystals, same crystals, uh, as a matter of fact, you can inexpensively buy uh, 7030s and the 14060 crystals. Uh, there's a place here in California called HSC. They get about 275 a piece for them. So for a couple of bucks, you can get a couple of crystals, make a VXO, and you can tune, you know, one or two kilohertz either side of the, the, the QRP watering holes and, and have a usable receiver. And, and believe me, that's, that's, you know, just terrific. And you, you this is another concept of taking things that you've built and integrating them in, into the future builds. So, That's right. so absolutely the, the the transmitter first, converting it to VXO. Okay, here's our here's our project. Um, ben and I were concerned that for the for the newbie builder, it's such a step function with many of these projects. You know, first you start out with this board and it's got a hundred dollars worth of parts on it, and uh, oh by the way, you need ten thousand dollars worth of test equipment <laughs> to see if this thing works. And we think that that's really uh, deterring a lot of uh, people who are prospective homebrewers to, 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 to take that on because just the startup costs are so dramatic. So uh, we wanted to start with a, a project that was pretty simple to build. And uh, as you say, the direct conversion receiver, we have a, a local oscillator and you have uh, several options. Uh, one would be the, the, the test oscillator that turned into a VXO. Uh, another would be to build a VFO, uh, which is not that hard to do. One or two transistors in the VFO will give you enough LO drive. Uh, or you can even use the Arduino. And uh, in the the uh, prototype that I have here on the bench, I've used all three. So uh, I, I know it works with any one of those, and that's what we wanted to prove, that you could 
for a local oscillator, either use the Arduino, which is the real top rung of the ladder, uh, and the bottom, of course, would be the VXO, and somewhere in the middle is the VFO. The, uh, the double balance mixer that we built uh, uses two uh, trifiller wand transformers and uh, four diodes. And so there's a, a little trick uh, to, to being having a successful double balance mixer, and it's care and winding the transformers and picking four diodes that are matched for forward resistance. Oh, yeah. And that's the only, that's the only trick. <laughs> that well, is you know, the only trick. <laughs> about that, we need to say something. Look, it's like one of these moments we need to talk about toroids. Yeah. Because one of the things that you hear about homebrew projects, and I don't really understand this, and I'm going to kind of <laughs> scold people a little bit. We don't do that often here on the show, but you very often hear guys say, well, I'd love to build my own equipment, but I don't like winding toroids. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's like saying, you know, I, I, like, I like having a garden, but I don't like that bit about putting seeds into the ground. I mean, you're going to yep. do it or you're not. Yep. <laughs> and winding the, winding the coils is a, is a big part of the game. So, and, and not only that, it's, it's, it's a little tricky when you first start doing it because the cores are a little small and you've got to get the, the wire through them right. But it's right. like anything else. It's a skill that you develop. You develop your own you know, technique. And you get better at it. I remember uh, I was seeing a, a few years back at, at, at four days in May, they had a, a toroid winding contest. And some of these guys who had been doing a lot of this would just sit there and just zip, 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 zip and they'd wind the toroid. And you do get better at it. And it's, um, it's, not, it's not that bad. So please, any prospective builders out there, don't be deterred by the fact that you might have to wind some toroids. It's, uh, it's, it's part of building and it's fun. And, you, uh, and it puts... Uh, it puts more soul in the new machine when you do it yourself. Uh, absolutely. And and you can be a successful toroid winder if you just take your time and uh, you, you need a little bit of care. And there's a, there's a difference between winding the iron core uh, versus the ferrite core. The iron core are the ones that have the colors on them, you know, yeah. either red or yellow or black or blue or whatever, d d depending upon what mix, what mix it is. But the ferrites... Uh, tend to be molded, and and as a such, they have sharp edges. So you yeah. need to be careful when you're winding the toroid. And just there, there's a magic decoder ring here. One pass through the core, one turn. That's it. That's <laughs> one it. One pass through the core, one turn. So <laughs> it's it's real. Just repeat. That's the mantra. Just repeat it yourself. You know, <laughs> one pass through the core, one turn. Um, I I just uploaded a a video on YouTube about how to build a double balance mixer. Yeah. And we spend a little bit of time about how to wind the toroids. And there's another trick to toroids, especially if you're running a, a bifiller wound or a trifiller wound or, or quad filler wound. I guess there are some, some projects where they have done that. And uh, the secret is um, to, first off, use different color wires, or as you have mentioned in the past, uh, Doug Namaw used to paint the ends of the wires so you know which is which. Yep. Uh, uh, the other thing is, uh, is don't just pass the wires through there, especially if you have a, a bifiller or trifiller wand. You need to twist the wires together first so that there's really good coupling. And actually, believe it or not, you're, you're building a transmission line. Yep. So, so if you are going to twist two wires together, do about eight twists uh, per inch. Yep. 
and that gives you uh, or, or you know something that's manageable. And then if you're going to wind trifolar wound, uh, you you wind the two together first, and uh, and do it consistently. This is where you take your time, not just do it haphazardly, and you'll you'll develop a series of lands and grooves. And then when you wind that third winding over the top of it, just fit it in the land, and it'll come together really nice, <laughs> really nice. But you just need to take your time. When, when you do it, and you get a nice wind, wire bundle. And when you get the three windings together like that, you have the most desirable coupling that, that you could want. And then once you uh, put the turns of wire uh, around the toroid, kind of space them so that they're not all uh, bunched together so that you yeah. get a nice symmetry to it. Now, Bill, tell us about what difference does it make when you're using wire sizes? Not much. <laughs> guys get really hung up on this yeah uh, they, they'll see in the uh in the in the in the article that it says they've got number 22 wire and they'll look in their box and they say oh my gosh i only have number 24 i can't build it well i mean the, one of the things to realize with all these coils is that you, you're essentially in addition to be making the transmission line that, that you just mentioned but what you're shooting for is a value of inductance yep you know, what the circuit wants at that point especially if it's at a resonant frequency circuit you need a certain amount of inductance to work with the capacitor that you're going to put in there to make the thing resonate on, you know, 7.2 megahertz or wherever. And this brings us to another piece of test gear that would probably be a good addition to the, to the bench, and that's an LC meter. You can buy yep. a little LC meter. Almost all of us are using the LC meter from all, almost all digital electronics. A Bingo. A-A-D-E. <laughs> it's a wonderful little device. I, I use it all the time. See, because yep. what this is where, where toroid winding gets scary for some guys, I think, because they wind it and they know that it's supposed to be, you know, 3.2 microhenries. But you've got this thing that you just wound and you're holding in your hand and you say, I don't know whether it's 3.2 microhenries or, or 3,000 microhenries. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You don't know. You, yeah. can't, you can't tell <clears throat> it by weight or, or, or anything like that. But what you do is you reach over to your test bench and you grab your almost all digital electronic LC meter, you turn the thing on, and you, you put the probes on it, and it tells you exactly what it is. Yep. And, and you know, and if it, ends up at, if it ends up at four microhenries, then you say, okay, I'm going to take off a turn or two. And then you, you check it again. And so in this way, you can really check your, your work. I mean, you know, and there's, there's variations, too, in the cores and then the wires and everything else. And... And even though the, in the design, the builder might have said you need 23 turns, when you actually do it, you might actually need 25 or 22. But the important yep. thing is to get the value of inductance called for by the circuit. And that little LC meter from almost all digital electronics, that's going to that's gonna increase your confidence level enormously. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a Amadon, uh, which I guess is one of the principal suppliers of, of the cores, used to have this really neat booklet <laughs> that, that if you bought from Amazon used to be in the box. I don't think they supply that booklet anymore, but it, but it's a strange booklet because it's like a roadmap. And when, when you open this roadmap up, it's printed on both sides. And everything you'd ever want to know about toroids is on that roadmap. And I, got boy, you, I got something similar from Palomar Engineers. And, and, and I, I got to tell you, that's worth its weight in gold because... They, they even have a matrix in there saying um, for, for a particular size core and a, and a particular wire size, how many turns you can put on there. 
Yeah. So so that is very useful to say, well, you know, what kind of wire I have. Like uh, you may say, I need 56 turns. If you do the calculations, you would need 56 turns for this particular AL value of core. Well, if, if you've got a, a type 30, uh, a size 30 core on there, you can't put 56 turns on it. So right, it isn't right. going to work. So yeah. you need to you need to use something else. So that's where that's that's useful. If but you can get, one, get your hands on one of those, don't lose it. <laughs> The other thing is, I mean, when you're doing the winding, I mean, it's it's not like you're, you know, producing something. If you get it wrong, just take the wire out, get another hunk of wire, and start again. Yeah. For example, if you start winding the thing, and all of a sudden you need, you know, you need 30, 30 turns, you get to 23 turns, and you've got no more wire in your hand, well, just take the wire off, measure yourself a bigger chunk of wire, and yep. then start winding it again. You know, uh, one one thing to mention. This is here's some travel knowledge, Pete. How do you get the enamel off the end? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a I, controversial issue here. You yeah, know? yeah. You know how I get mine off? I have a piece of a block of soft wood, and I put the wire on there, and I take my Exacto knife, and I just scrape it off. Really? Or yeah. you can burn it off. Now, some some of the enamel coatings, if you if you use a high temperature soldering iron, mm -hmm. you you can actually uh, burn uh, the uh, enamel insulation off. Some of the w coatings won't burn off as easy as others, yeah. and so that that is a little bit of a problem. And well, the other thing you've got to be careful of is if you're really close to that core, you can heat up that core with a very hot soldering iron. That's yeah. not a good idea. Yeah, you know, and it, this is something that when you, this is this is tribal knowledge because a lot of guys will will make their transformer. And then they won't. They might not realize that that wire, especially if they're using a, a like kind of a, a copper-colored enamel, that it's not making contact. You're not going to be able to solder it very well into the circle with the, with the enamel on, but you really have to strip it to make sure that bare copper yep. is exposed. Yep. And there's and that that can be a perilous moment because if you if you're not used to working with this stuff and you try with like Pete said to scrape it off with an exacto knife or or another knife. You could nick that copper. It's pretty thin. You could break the wire, and then you got to start yep. all over again. Yep. And there's there's all kinds of different techniques and theories for <clears> getting the enamel off. I, I like to burn it. And what I do is I have in the shack, one of the real useful pieces of, of, of hardware that you can also get out of the kitchen is one of these little, uh, it's like a cigarette lighter with a long, long neck that they use oh, for starting yeah. up the stove. Yeah. I love those things. It's yeah. like you have a little butane uh, yeah. you know, butane, butane flame source in the shack. And I take it, I turn it on, and I I just run the a little bit of enamel wire. I have they have it so the heat is going up and away from the core, okay? Yep. So I just but I just run the wire through and I just do it enough so that if you watch the enamel, all of a sudden it'll get hot enough and you'll see that enamel go poof like a little puff yep. of smoke. So you're not even really heating the wire that much. You're certainly not heating the core that much. And if you want, you can even put a heat, heat you can put a thermo, you can put a hemostat, hemostat on below yeah. it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I, I like that. Then I take a little bit of Scotch Bright, like pad. This green, these green pads, more stuff from the yeah. kitchen. Scotch Bright. Don't ever bring Brillo pad into the shack. You might think that Brillo pad is good. There should be a law. There should be yeah. a rule, a law that yeah. forbids Brillo pad in any form from being brought into a ham radio workshop. Because the thing is, it looks great. It looks like you could shine things up and everything else. But you know what it does? 
it leaves these horrible little metal whiskers all yep. over the place. And once and that, they get into your shack, they have a magical ability to find their way into your circuits and short things out and blow things up. So believe me, these little green Scotch-Brite pads that you can see, they sell them in the supermarkets. Yep. And they're, they're made out of plastic. They're rough. It's, they're, they're good. little piece of sandpaper, too. Sandpaper's never going to cause you any trouble. But no Brillo pads, please, no. Amen. <laughs> anyway, um, that I mean that, that's those are the um, kind of words of wisdom on the toroids. You know, uh, before uh, we want to talk about heat sinks here too. I think that's one of the things that we might have to talk. We need to talk about. But first, you know, on the direct conversion receiver, you know, that is such a fantastic project because I, one of the reasons that I took on the um, this project of the, the Herring Aid Five was because. I had been told somewhere along the line, somewhere in the ham radio lore, was that the, the, the mark of a true radio amateur home brewer is, is that he or she has built at least one receiver. Building a receiver, for some reason, all through ham radio history, has been considered really hard. The old timers, a lot of times, and back when hams were hams, and you know, and all hams knew which end of the soldering iron to grab and all that stuff, even back then, if you talk to a lot of the old timers, they'll tell you with great pride about all the transmitters that they built. But if you ask them, oh, yeah, what was your receiver? They'll kind of hang their head and mumble and they'll say it was a national such and such or a hammer yeah. such and such. <laughs> because and, and, you know, even QST encouraged this. If you, you could find old QST articles in which they really go out there and encourage the, the hams to, to build the transmitters. But then they say, but of course receivers a quality receiver especially a quality superhead receiver is beyond the ability of most radio amateurs which is i think nonsense and uh i agree and so the direct conversion receiver project can definitely put you in the uh in the in the in the ranks of the of the steely-eyed homebrew <laughs> a radio amateur but by, by the way bill before i forget you you'll be really proud of me this project uh, for the audio amplifier, does not have an IC in it. Oh man! It, you, it, it's got, it's got uh, four, two N thirty nine oh fours and one two N thirty nine oh six. I know you did that for me, Pete. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel better. <laughs> um, uh, maybe we let's see. Okay, so the but the, the you pay take a look at Pete's videos, and once you get that oscillator under your belt then think about building a direct conversion receiver and then maybe looking a little bit further down the line this is where the real fun begins because once you have a direct conversion receiver going it's it's really a pretty pretty much a piece of cake to go the next step and build along with it the opposite side of it is sort of a a double sideband uh, transmitter and there's so many of these out there if you want to just look forward to what you might be able to do take a look on the internet at uh, rigs like um, uh, Peter Parker VK3YE's Beach 40, it's the Beach 40, or another rig out there out of Canada called the Wee Willy, the Wee Willy, or out of New Zealand the um, the ZL2 BMI rig. Um, any of these rigs will give you an idea of how simple a phone HF transceiver can be. And so, again, you don't have to think that home brewing is all about CW. You could just as easily go down a path towards phone. 
And double sideband is a great way to follow up on a direct conversion receiver project. Uh, by the way, I want to also mention that you 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 will be amazed. I was just the other day. Uh, I had the uh, and the the one on the bench happens to be on 40 meters. Uh, I was uh, listening around to the CW portion of the band, and uh, this was uh, oh about seven eight o'clock here on the west coast, and and I was hearing the JAs <laughs> come yeah. through on CW. Yeah. And and I I don't have much of an antenna here, and I'm saying wow. This is amazing. <laughs> I with, mean, with so, the direct conversion receiver? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. Th and there's another thing. Everybody who works with direct conversion receivers comments on this. They sound, they have a wonderful sound. It sounds, it's hard to describe, but it sounds like you're really, you're, you're close to the radio signal. You're listening yeah. to it without any real filtering or, or processing or anything like that. And it, sound, it has got a very, very kind of, kind of warm, kind of natural sound to it. Absolutely. Um, let's see. I, now I think, Pete, we have to try to, to go get a little bit basic here and talk about some practical aspects, things, kind of do's and don'ts, tribal knowledge. And I'll just throw out, well, let's, no, let's talk about heat sinks. I know you got some stories about heat sinks and, and hemostats. People are scratching their heads saying, why are these guys bringing surgical equipment into the workbench? Tell them. Yeah. Well, Okay. The hemostat is probably one of the most useful tools that you can have in your toolbox. And uh, let me give you a little example. Have you ever worked on a, uh, on a radio where you wonder how, how they got that nut loose or, or how, the, how you have to put something back together and you can't, can't get your fingers in there to, to hold the nut while you're putting a screw in? Well, let me tell you, the hemostat. <laughs> you get them in hardware stores. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll hold that nut perfect, and, uh, you know, usually if you get ones that about, uh, they have some shorties, and they have some longer ones, and uh, if you get the longer one, you have a, a wider mouth opening, but but it's quite excellent for getting in places where you need to hold the nut to so you can put a screw in, so that's, that's one of the first uses. Second use is uh, heat sink when you're soldering uh, devices, like, for instance, uh, if you're soldering a transistor uh, or you're soldering a diode, uh, it's really a good idea to put a heat sink on there because y that temp temperature could be seven or eight hundred degrees, and if you're having a little trouble <laughs> getting that to weld down to a, a pad or something like that, you could be doing some heat damage uh, to these uh, components. So it's always a good idea to use the hemostat. Uh, you know, just back off uh, from your connection a little bit. You don't want to get it too close because otherwise it's going to work as a heat sink and you can't solder it. Right. So the uh, the idea is to get it as close to the device as you can, so this way it'll it'll absorb the heat and uh, protect the device. So re really important, and uh, many of these components, uh, you know, they're built on the line. They're 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 built inexpensively, but they, they may be not as durable uh, with regard to rejecting heat. So use the hemostat, believe me. But yes. but a very handy tool for, and it's also handy for. When you drop something in a chassis and <laughs> you can't get your hands in there, <laughs> the hemostat works perfect for retrieving oh, man, parts great. inside. Yeah, uh, I use it, use it all the time. You know, and you yeah. know, you, you develop over time. You, you know, it, it's common sense. You don't have to put a heat sink on when you're when you're soldering on a resistor or a capacitor yeah. or something like that. It's it's the, the devices, the solid yeah, state devices. The solid state devices, you need them, and it just you just put it on the lead there, and it's it's very reassuring. And actually, you know, you, 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 can, you can see what's going on because after you finish soldering that uh, FET into the circuit, 
reach over. Don't remove it right away because it's still drawing heat from the from the from the for the junction. Leave it on there for a few seconds. But if you grab that heat sink, you could feel all the heat that's soaked up like yeah. a sponge. And that heat went into the went into the hemostat. It went into the handle and the, the hemostat and the pinches of the hemostat. And all that heat would have gone into that tiny, tiny transistor junction and could have could have fried things significantly. It's also useful for when you're you're soldering like um, braided uh, uh, solder, a uh, braided coax, where the dielectric yeah. can melt. And if you're not careful, you know the the heat from the soldering iron could cause the dielectric and the coax to melt through. Anytime you have to draw heat away, that's uh, that's the time for for a heat sink, and you'll you'll get and, and they're cheap. Yeah, they're cheap, and they they sell them at Harbor Freight and and, and places, electronic stores and. Uh, hardware stores have them. I mean, you don't have to go to the surgical supply house or anything like yeah. that. But they get the elect- electrical ones, but they're very commonly used. And, uh, and while you're picking those up, get a pair of tweezers because yeah. that'll work as a heat. I have a pair of right angle tweezers, yeah. and they work as a heat sink too. You can just you know hold it yeah. and clamp it. It's really good. Yeah, sometimes in a pinch, even little alligator clips. Anything yeah. that gets metal on there that's going to draw the heat away from the devices is, is useful. Um, one thing I want to mention here, and it's just—it's a little thing, but it's—it's it's a little bit of tribal knowledge. A lot of times you'll be working on a rig, and you'll have a variable capacitor in there. And these variable capacitors are usually some of the more expensive components in a rig, or the hard to replace. Um, and you'll have a nice one in there. And there's the there's the stator, and those are the blades that stay in a fixed position. And then you have the rotor blades that kind of go in and out. It's called, it looks like a bread slicer, you know, the rotors. The rotors are fragile because they're just hanging out there in space, you know? And so when you're working on the rig, your big clumsy hands and tools are going in there. If you have the rotors just hanging out, you could very easily bump them and bend them and break them, and that's really bad. The way you prevent that is anytime you're working on a rig with a variable capacitor in it, turn it so that the stator blades are fully meshed with the rotor blades. This will leave it a little less exposed, a little bit more protected, and you're less likely to to damage a, a, um, a variable capacitor. So um, let's see. What else? What other words of wisdom do we have, uh, uh, Pete? Well, I, I think it's just a matter of um, a lot of common sense and, and thinking uh, ahead of what you're doing and possibilities. Like, uh, I, I got to tell you, um, one of the worst things you can happen working on the tube rig is you uh, put the, <laughs> put the, pull a tube out and you uh, you kind of just lay it on the bench, and next thing you know, it takes a life on of its own, and it rolls off the bench, falls on the floor, and smashes. And oh, and I got to tell you, I I did that once with a uh, Heathkit HW101 uh, audio tube. It's got a it's got a really strange audio tube. I know it. the tube. It's big, kind of a little tall, yeah, tall one. Yeah, Six yeah. GW something. Yeah, and six GW8, I think. There it is. you go. And. If you buy a used one, it costs you twenty five bucks. <laughs> so, guys, Oops. put put when you pull stuff out. And what I'm getting to is, get yourself some of these plastic boxes mm-hmm. with compartments in it, and you pull tubes out or you pull parts out. Uh, put those in, in a safe place, and and you'll thank yourself later because when you go to put something back, it, you got you got your hand on everything because if you don't put it in a box, it's going to get lost in your workbench or fall on the floor. And I got to tell you, I really learned my lesson with that with that tube. It really hurt to have to go, you know, get one. And and I was so close to getting the the radio fixed and working that I had to wait another five days to get a tube because they're just not something I had in, on the shelf. So mm-hmm. um, you know, pay 
pays dividends to think ahead what you're doing and and always say the worst thing is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Murphy, Murphy is with us. Yes. Hey, listen, I got one here in a very similar vein, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to recognize what I'm saying, and probably a lot of our listeners, especially the newcomers, might not get it at first, but it's very much in this, along the same lines. Reverse polarity protection. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Okay, here's the deal. You know, especially when you're working on a solid-state rig, and especially when you're in the final phase, you finished it. Now you've got to tweak it and peak it and debug it and do all this stuff. So you're you're anxious to get it going. You're kind of tired. You're kind of frustrated. And there's a lot of plugging and unplugging. You're moving it around. You're powering it up. You're unpowering it. You're plugging it in and everything else. I guarantee you that you will eventually connect the positive power line to ground and the negative power line to the positive connector you will put reverse polarity on that rig and it's really possible that when you do that you'll fry almost a good portion of the solid state devices in there because they just can't handle it all right yep. so you'll hear you'll you'll smell this little bit of smoke coming out and now you you truly are in a world of hurt when this happens and there's a way to avoid this protection reverse polarity protection and it's actually kind of a neat trick you really should look at the manuals look at the books because there's different ways to do it but i'll describe it briefly there's two real basic ways you could do it in the power connector lead say the positive lead you just put a diode in there put a diode in series with the power lead coming in so that if you have it powered correctly the diode will let the voltage current go through there'll be a little 0.6 voltage drop but it's worth it because if you flip it around, that diode is going to be open and it's going to prevent that electrical energy from going in and burning up your components. There's a variation of this where you put the diode from the positive terminal to ground and then you have a, a fuse coming in. So if, if you plug it in properly, that diode is not conducting and it's almost like it's not even in the circuit. However, when you make your mistake and you do the reverse polarity and you put, put it in the wrong way, that diode is going to be like a short. It's going to short all that energy right to ground, and that fuse that you have in the line is going to pop immediately. So either way, and there's, there's a lot of different variations, but these are the two basic ways to do it. But I always think, even before I get really going on the circuit, I, do, I try to put in the reverse polarity protection because... It'll save you, and it'll save you a whole lot of, whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of heartache and frustration. So, you know, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's worth doing. Yeah, and, and to that end, you you might want to just uh, do a little research on crowbar circuits. Yeah. Uh, when you were talking about the uh, the uh, fuse in the circuit, the crowbar is a uh, is a way of, of preventing over voltage from over voltaging <laughs> your radio. Yeah. Some some of these power supplies you have with a pass transistor if something fails in the pass transistor instead of putting 12 volts in there you're liable to put 20 yeah because uh you just just the way the power supplies are designed especially some of these older supplies that you you pick up that uh, were built for for radios uh that that are no longer in production you get a real good deal on it uh you know you were looking for that 12 volt 20 amp supply <laughs> bill earlier 
And, and that's what you have to be careful of, that uh, some of the radios had the crowbars built into them, not in the power supply. So uh, that, that's a worthwhile investment to prevent uh, over-voltaging uh, your, your radio. And it, it can happen. And, boy, uh, you put 20 volts into some of these radios, uh, some of these devices, uh, and I'm talking not so much the transistors, but some of the integrated circuits uh, won't like that. So yeah. uh, you got to be really careful, and, and, and it's worthwhile to... Just do a little internet search on crowbars. Yeah, another another thing along these lines, and it's something that the guys in GQRP Club, especially uh, Tony Fishpool, um, recommends, is a current limited power supply on yep. the bench. And I and I have a nice one here that I picked up at the uh, the Kempton Park Rally over there in London. And Tony sent me a chip to put in this thing to kind of give it this uh, current limiting feature. So I have a power supply that I, I can limit the current at to um, 0.01 amp. 0.1 amp or 2 amps, and this means that if you've got something in there in the circuit that's gone significantly South, wrong, yeah. you're not gonna you're not gonna smoke the whole thing, and uh, the, the power supply will just just reduce the voltage in essence to keep the current from exceeding that that limit. It, hey, isn't there isn't there an article in the current sprat about a current limited supply? There I might think be. There is. I think there is. Yeah. Good. Go well, it's always good to plug sprat. I mean, guys, yeah. if you're not getting sprat, you're missing out. So. Uh, Right to GQRP. It's really wonderful. I, I love this last edition. It was all kinds of great stuff in there. Um, you know, one thing else on safety, and I, I feel sort of obligated to to, to, to point this out as, a, as one of the founding uh, Solder Smoke podcast people, Solder Smoke. Hey, don't breathe that smoke, okay? I mean, it's bad stuff. And there is real. there are real simple ways to protect yourself. I mean, sometimes you, when you look at, like, some of the some of the websites, they, 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 they have these kind of evacuation, industrial strength evacuation systems that looks to me like it's really, you know, really hard to do, especially in a, in a household setting. I think the main thing to do, the best thing you can do is just to have a fan on the edge of the bench blowing everything that comes off the, the soldering iron away from your face. And I just have a little fan down at the edge of the, edge of the bench and it blows laterally across the bench. So when I'm soldering something, that smoke is not coming up into my nose or mouth. It's being blown away. And I, I think that's a, a real basic uh, safety precaution. What are your thoughts on, on that? Oh, absolutely. I I happen to have purchased one of the commercial uh, little smoke eaters, uh, with uh, and it's got a charcoal filter in it, replaceable, and, and they work really well. Uh, actually, uh, Bill, I built one <laughs> at, at one time. And, and it worked kind of really well. And, and I found this uh, little fan that uh, was used in, in, a, in a computer. And it, and it was round. And I, found, I got a piece of PVC pipe. And I, and I arranged it so it wasn't uh, blowing away but sucking away. Yeah. And so I, just, I, I made it this uh, piece of plastic, PVC pipe. I think it was like two or three inches in diameter to the end of that. And this little 12-volt supply. And then I could... Uh, I had it like on an arm, you know, like these swing arms. Yeah. And then you can put that right over, and boy, you just solder, and you see that you see all that smoke <laughs> going away. Yep. So I, I absolutely agree. But the problem is the third arm was always in the way, you know. And so I that, I bought one of these little smoke eaters, and they're not, they're not very expensive, and they're just a small device, and you can just put them put the circuit board that you're working on kind of right in front of this and it just sucks it away so yeah, yeah yes absolutely get it get it away from you and there's a lot of different yep. ways to do it 
but but just do something. I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm what Pete just said is going to going to motivate me to, to 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 make some improvements in my area. But but you know, at the very least, have that fan there, and you can pick up a fan at at CVS Pharmacy or Rite Aid or Walmart. You can get a little five or ten dollar fan. I have one that just clips on the edge of the bench, and that right there will be a big improvement over having this stuff just sort of floating around in front of your yeah. your face, which is not good at all. Hey, um, let's see, Pete. Any Time. other? Any, well, no, but you know, we, what we might do is we might just go from part one to part two since we're okay. on roll here. So yeah. No, you, no you know, I want to do uh, share something with you because it kind of floated through my mind, and this this might just uh, this might just strike a chord here. Um, I, I've been homebrewing stuff for for a long time, and uh, I, I think I started. Uh, actually, it was my dad got me started by by building me a crystal set when I was about eight or nine years old. Wow. And and. Back in 1950, I was living outside of Pittsburgh, and they had two um, two TV stations. Uh, one was KDKA, uh, kind of the first commercial uh, radio broadcast station. 1925, w- yeah. Yeah, uh, WTAE. So on Sunday nights, on Sunday nights, there were there were two competing radio programs. One um, TV programs. One was uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, and the other one was the Colgate Comedy Hour. And uh, we were one of the first first people sort of in our family to have a TV set. So we'd get all these visitors on Sunday night that would come and visit us so they, they could watch the Ed Sullivan show. And, and I didn't like Ed Sullivan. I, I really preferred the Colgate Comedy Hour. So in reading a magazine, I discovered something interesting. And my first transmitter was a Johnson Speedex buzzer. Back in the old days, before they had oscillators, they had these buzzers that you, it was a high-frequency buzzer, and it was sold by the E.F. Johnson Company, and it uh, you could adjust the pitch so as you uh, keyed it with a key, it would create uh, CW sounds. Well, it also had this wideband spectrum <laughs> of RF energy, so I took that buzzer, built my, and this is my first transmitter project, I built a, an RF amplifier for that thing, and when you keyed that that buzzer, it put out, it put an RF spectrum out everywhere so that it blanked the TV set. <laughs> so, so what I would do, and mind you, this is a kid nine years old. What I would do is they'd come over and they'd turn on the Ed Sullivan channel. You know, back in those days, TV was kind of flaky. If you turned that transmitter on, it blanked the station. You know, you know, you know. I, I think I need to give you some legal advice here, my friend. I, I'm not sure the statute of limitations is up on this. <laughs> so. <laughs> So it would blank it off, and uh, so they turned the other channel, and I turned it off. You know, you got there are <laughs> there are so many threads of of radio and electronic history in that story. <laughs> yes. First of all, this means that you really do go back to the age of Spark. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you you'd be one of these guys that like you know putting on the QSL card Spark forever. You know, yeah, enough of this yeah, CW yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not it. only that, Wozniak. You know, this was what yeah. what Wozniak was doing in college. He rigged up a little like TV transmitter in his pocket, and he used to go into the dorm. And at the critical moment, he would hit the button, and then they would knock out the TV. And yeah. then in, in his book, he describes how they would then have one of the other students stand up there holding the antenna in a certain angle, and he would keep manipulating it by hitting the button. <laughs> So, <laughs> yes, you yes. and and Waz and Spark and, and now they even sell this TV Begone thing. Yeah. So yeah, 
<laughs> well, but but the important thing was I discovered something there that that was pretty cool, and it. and it says you know well, why don't I get serious about this, and uh, that's that's when I started you know building more things. I said hey that worked that was pretty cool, and then I tried to find out why it worked, and then I knew. So anyway, it, and it took my parents a little while <laughs> to figure out what was happening, <laughs> what was happening, but it was me, you know. <laughs> so uh, you, as long as you watched the other channel, it was fine. So, uh. <laughs> Well, good story there, Pete. Listen, uh, um, let's see, anything else on the tribal knowledge there, or should we move on? To, we have some, some odds and ends and some mail that we wanted to talk yeah, about. Just, just one thing, is, uh, and I want to encourage people, and, and I guess... One of the things that we got to be careful when we say tribal knowledge is right away people say, well, I don't have that tribal knowledge, therefore I can't do it. And and it's only by doing that, that you develop some of the skill set w- with regard to the tribal knowledge. You, you learn things, and, and it's a good idea, too, to kind of document uh, what you're doing. Because i got to tell you, you can't trust your memory, at least at my age. I can't trust my memory to remember Oh yeah, that's what I did before, and and kind of you know what what you've learned about uh, oscillators and what you learned about uh, <clears throat> you know direct conversion receivers, uh, kind of keep a little notebook of that, and and then it's easier to refer to, and, and that that becomes your your tribal knowledge data source, and, yeah. and that's your database, and you can go back and say, oh yeah, that's how I did that thing. Uh, and, and I think it's very, very useful. I have a whole series of file folders here that every project that I work on, I'll, I'll keep, I'll, you know, I'll print stuff off the Internet. So if I want to go back to that project, I open the folder, and there's everything in there in that folder that all the pieces of paper and, you know, sketches I made and drawings, and, and it's really very useful to, to – so that's that's my tribal knowledge database. And, and uh, I, I think it's important. You should not be deterred by the fact that you don't – you just say, well, I don't have all that. I can't do it. Yes, you can. There's there's a lot of information floating around the Internet. And and that's the other caution I would make is take a look <laughs> at what's in the Internet sometimes and and kind of get two or three data sources. Yeah. Because some, sometimes some of the stuff people tell you is absolutely wrong. Oh, I know. And that's why I said before, you know, when you, when you get advice, it, even if it's really well-meaning, a lot of times it's just yeah. well, not, not I, I, I have. I was, I subscribed to quite a few reflectors, and some some person was having a problem with a ten tech radio, and he was saying, oh, yeah, you know, the frequency display is not correct, and it's uh, it's got a problem here." And so all these people told him, "Well, it's it's your it's your heterodyne crystal," and and I said, "That's absolutely wrong." And the ten tech radios, they don't use in most of them, they don't use a twenty meter heterodyne. It's the the VFO is used directly. As into the mixer stage, so I said someone's going to go looking for a crystal, and there's not going to be one there, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, some of the stuff they come up with. Is, yeah. Uh, you so know. you know, you you've got to, and that's where if you looked at the the manual and the circuit diagram, you'd say, oh, there's no crystal there, and it has to be something else. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good advice. I mean, because you do have to kind of evaluate the, uh, the the sources there and find out whether somebody's giving you, you know, just off the top of their heads, or whether they are they're actually knowledgeable uh, about the rig. Hey, talking about good knowledge and stuff, I um, and tribal knowledge. I agree with you. You have to people have to kind of be willing to move past the instant gratification thing. If you really want to get into this, it's going to take you a while to build up skills, and you shouldn't just look at it and say, "Well, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I'd like to do it, but I don't know how to do it, so I'm not going to do it." Well, if you do that way, you're, you're really you're not going to do it definitely. Yeah. But, but there's, I think you know, you you could 
you know, pursue it, but you have to look at it as kind of a process. You know, nobody, in just about any kind of hobby <clears throat> pursuit, there's a certain amount of uh, skill development involved, and that's what makes it fun. And you know, I want to recommend a book. I got a book here. I met, I, one of the AWRL sent me a card with a ten dollar uh, birthday gift, <laughs> and I I used it to uh, to buy a book I've been meaning to look at. It's the International QRP Collection, compiled and edited by the Reverend George Dobbs, G three RJV, yeah, and Steve uh, Telenius Lowe, nine M six DXX. Wow, it's available from RSGB. I got mine from the AWRL. And it is a really fantastic collection of articles on, you know, QRP projects, but but some amplifier projects. It's not, I think about half the articles are for phone and half are for CW, so it's not really kind of CW-centric. And there's some really, I mean, really innovative. It's, it's, it's as the title says, international. So there's articles from ham magazines and ham clubs all over the world. And one of the things I really liked in here, there's a, there's a couple of really excellent um, um, phasing sideband rigs, real simple phasing sideband rigs, very similar to some of the stuff that Peter Parker in, in oh, Australia yeah. has been working on. And I, I, just, I just love this thing. It's, it's, it's great for, um, you know, stick it in your, in, in your bag on the way to work or if you're going on vacation and stuff, there's, you know, 30 or 40 really good articles in there and, um, and a, a nice... Uh, Nice, some nice uh, preface comments from uh, from George Dobbs. So I wanted to make that that book recommendation. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, you know, uh, uh, listeners should take a look at the uh, the blog. We've been putting a lot of stuff on the blog, a lot of Pete's uh, videos, but also I, I put up an explanation of what happened with my uh, Regen receiver and the mystery of the echoes on uh, on Radio China. Uh, of China Radio International, I keep getting that backwards, but we, we, we finally figured it out what the echo was coming from, and it was coming from the fact that they're, they're broadcasting on two fairly close uh, frequencies in the 31 meter band, and my receiver is broad enough to pick up both of them at the same time, and one is coming from far western China in Xinjiang, and the other is coming from a relay station in Cuba, and it's not so much, I don't, I don't think it's so much the um, difference in, in path, in, or it's, it's not sort of a propagation thing. It's probably more just sort of digital delays. I understand they're getting the programming via satellite, and there could be, you know, a little bit of a delay in when one of the satellite receivers gets the signal and the other. So it, the result is that the, the two signals with the same programming are coming with, a, with kind of a, a time difference of, uh, you know, of kind of half a second or so. And so when you listen to both these signals at the same time, it sounds like this really weird echo thing going on. But uh, it was kind of fun to track down the mystery. By the way, that uh, current uh, video that, that you have on your blog, uh, the, the Hackaday Bill Hearn. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that is really some excellent, excellent information. That and that's yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you got to look at you got to look at that. Everybody should take a that. look. I put that up on the <laughs> blog too. He, he he gave a real good uh, explanation of kind of um, of how harmonics combine to produce to go from a sine wave to a square wave, and what and how the different uh, harmonics contribute to the production of a square wave. Uh, I thought that was really good, really well done. I agree. Thanks for mentioning that uh, that Pete. We've been getting some uh, some really good email, uh, and I put some of this stuff on the blog. And I guess this begins. This is Solder Smoke Mailbag. 
So there, cue, cue the gong. Ooh, that's awesome. Oh, cool. Bing. Okay. Bing. <laughs> Ooh, that's awesome. Thanks, Billy. Um, anyway, uh, Pete Eaton sent us um, some clips on a, a really fantastic rig called the Tucker Tin 2. It's a two-tube sideband rig from New Zealand. And really, really interesting with a lot of good articles and stuff about it. Put that up. Pete is encouraging me to build a, a tube sideband transmitter. I am I am resisting. I have, I've got to do all the surface mount stuff first, Pete. <laughs> Eventually, I'll do it. I got a, you know, very Pete, very apropos of your story about your start in ham radio. I got a um, a nice email from Dave K8WPE, and uh, he he sent me uh, an email and he said, uh, right now it is crystal sets and regens and even low voltage tube regens that have piqued my interest. I started out with crystal sets. And thanks to the local Belltone hearing aid folks, I used an old tube-type hearing aid as an audio amp. Used the sub-miniature tubes that ran on Burgess 22.5-volt B batteries. What fond memories. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with us, Dave. And of course, we mentioned Colin, M1BUU, has been um, been corresponding with us about a... Is he building a BIDX or a Minima, Pete? Uh, I think he's building a BIDX. Yeah, he's building a BIDX, and he's been... Kind of uh, debating whether to go uh, for the VF for the for the, uh, for the local oscillator, whether to go DDS or VFO or VXO. I think he's going with the Arduino, Pete. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think. And then um, also got a, got a nice email from Bill N3 uh, UKI, and motivated by uh, by Solder Smoke's last presentation on Arduino, he is uh, venturing into the world of microcontrollers. Uh, good luck on good luck, Bill, and thanks for for writing into us. Uh, any correspondence at your your end you want to mention, Pete? Uh, I think that uh, pretty much uh, you you've covered it because I I'm, I got copies or you forwarded to me uh, those those emails, and I I think that's that's really good that uh, uh, you know people are listening to these podcasts and saying you know I ought to try that, and that that's really good. That that that's terrific. That that's the good part of the feedback. Yeah, well, we've been having a lot of fun. All right, so the big decision that we're going to have to make is whether to make this the longest ever Solder Smoke podcast <laughs> or to break it up into two. What do you think? I, I don't know. You're you're the expert on this. I, I I've just been writing along here recently, and uh, you, you know, a comment that I'd like to make is uh, so, some of the feedback I saw. Uh, I I think the thing is we just enjoy talking about this subject, and I guess we get a little carried away, but uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, the. You know, the listeners understand that this is a, a real opportunity to, to take up the iron. I mean, there's lots of fun things to do, and, and there's lots of technology available today that wasn't available previously. And it, you don't have to spend a lot of money. There's a lot of things that you can you can build that, that are inexpensive and that you can scrounge parts. And please don't overlook the fact that there's... Uh, you can find some stores in that or places that you can acquire, uh, you know, defunct equipment that it's uh, a great source of parts. So uh, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be very expensive. It can be done uh, kind of on uh, on a on a real budget, but it's just the idea of uh, experience the joy of building something yourself. Let's build something, Pete. Let's build something. Yes. <laughs> All right. Hey, listen, I think, I think we're going to make this the longest solder smoke podcast in history. 
and just keep it at one. Because you know, if people if they if they they can listen to it, they can turn it off and turn it on again. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we're just we're just having fun. It's, it's I, not like I, it's I, not like the Ed Sullivan show where it was yeah, on at a specific time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I only regret Bill, and I'm going to say this on uh, on the podcast. I only regret you don't you just don't live down the street with me because I'd like to. Uh, Continue this conversation in a local pub. <laughs> I think that'd be a lot of fun. Well, I, no, I feel the same way, Pete. But 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 here we are, and we'll 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 make the best of it. And I really appreciate you getting up early in the morning and talking to us. And uh, now we got to think about what the next topic we're going to talk about is. So let's give that some thought. Absolutely. All right. So listen, I think we better wrap it up here. We're at about we've we've been rambling on for like four or five hours, Pete. I think is that something? Uh, like that? One hour and forty minutes. One hour and forty minutes. Wow, a new record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. So so uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. We'll figure out what the next topic is. I'd like to say thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to you, Pete. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. 7-3s from the left coast. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll see you. 7-3s. Okay. Thanks. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from Lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, Consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!